Marvelites. Welcome to This Week in Marvel, episode number 364. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Jamie, a.k.a. Agent Embargo Lifted. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Embargo Lifted, because our top news this week is Marvel's Daredevil Season 3 is out now, exclusively on Netflix. I watched the season, the full season, a few weeks ago, and I think it's my favorite season of Marvel TV so far. I watched it as well. It is excellent. It's so good that I'm going to go ahead and watch it again. And nice. yeah, it, it was such great storytelling. It kind of puts the focus back on our favorite Marvel's Daredevil characters. And it tells such a story about a rise and a fall and how people are dealing with new journeys in their lives. And they're also just such good characters. Like yes. everybody kills it. And it's, you guys are going to love it. In more ways than one. But we're going to dig into things about the show in a few minutes with some comics recommendations for me, Jamie's experience visiting the set, and more. Uh, also, check out Marvel.com for plenty of hashtag quality content to help you go behind the scenes <laughs> and dig into the show, from primer videos to comics history recaps and bunches more. Our interview this week is with Jeremy Whitley because Unstoppable Wasp number one came out this week and also because Jeremy is the best and also because Nadia Van Dyne is the best best. Be sure to listen to this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List to find out why Unstoppable Wasp number one is one of my favorite picks of the week. Also, tune in to Marvel.com for an interview with Julie Seven-Sage. She is a 14-year-old scientist who is interviewed in this issue of Unstoppable Wasp. As you know, there's an interview with a, a girl scientist or a female scientist at the end of every issue. And we want you to read an excerpt. So visit Marvel.com for that interview and uh, buy yourself an issue of Unstoppable Wasp number one. Heck, yeah. And I was talking about Marvel's pull list. Our other picks from this week are Shuri number one. Daredevil number 609 and Marvel Zombie number one. Uh, make sure to subscribe to Marvel's Pull List wherever you subscribe to your podcasts, like wherever you're listening to this right now. Wherever you find stuff for your ears yes. and your head and your brain. Now on to things we're hyped about this week, including news. We have new details for Marvel's Spider-Man The Heist, the first chapter of Marvel's Spider-Man The City That Never Sleeps DLC series, which debuts Tuesday, October 23rd for Marvel's Spider-Man exclusively on PlayStation 4. This chapter features the return of Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. Black Cat, along with three new Spider-Man suits. The three suits are the Resilient Suit, which is a brand new suit designed exclusively for Marvel's Spider-Man by Gabriel Delotto. The Scarlet Spider 2 suit, which was designed for the comics by Ryan Stegman and his kick-ass uh, 2012 run on Scarlet Spider. Uh, there's the Spider UK suit, which is from an awesome character who's appeared in Spider-Verse and Spider-Geddon. That's Perfect. Nick Lowe's never going to let me stop doing that. He's in my brain now. Anyway, um, from our article on Marvel.com. In Marvel Spider-Man The Heist, the chapter centers on Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson finding themselves closing in on Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. Black Hat, while investigating the robbery of a New York art museum. A new storyline featuring the master thief, new enemies, and perilous danger takes Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson deep into the city's shadowy world of crime families. The article also features images of the new suits, an incredible piece of art by artist and suit designer Adi Granov, a video, and much more. Grab Marvel Spider-Man The Heist on PlayStation Store for 9 dollars 
or buy all three installments of Marvel Spider-Man The City That Never Sleeps DLC series as a special bundle for $24.99, which gets you Marvel Spider-Man The Heist as well as two additional chapters, Marvel Spider-Man Turf Wars and Marvel Spider-Man Silver Lining releasing later this year. Excellent Marvel Spider-Man stuff. Heck yeah. Uh, Marvel Studios' Ant-Man and the Wasp is now available on Blu-ray. Gotta make sure y'all know about that. Because features. Yes, tons of fantastic special features. And I think it's it, I think it's just time to dig into our hype for Marvel's Daredevil Season 3. Oh, let's dig in. Okay. Let's kick this off. Jamie, tell us about your set visit. It was so cool. It was back in the spring when the show was still in production. And we really weren't allowed to hear about very much. They were keeping a lot of things close to the vest. We knew Wilson Fisk was coming back, so we got to take a tour of his sweet, sweet penthouse, which is uh, just as beautiful as you're going to see it look on screen. My wife does New York City real estate, and I was just thinking, like, man, she's probably seen places that are this beautiful. Yeah. I want to live there. The ceilings were high. It was very marbly and clean. It's quite impressive. Everyone who was there just wanted to move in. I describe it as palatial. And um, we were told that the art was actually curated in there as a tribute to Vanessa. So keep that in mind when you're watching this season. We were also able to speak with almost every major character on the show. Charlie Cox, Deborah Ann Wall, and Eldon Henson. Plus Joanne Wally, who plays Sister Maggie, who were all very secretive, but talked a lot about the state of their all of their relationships following Marvel's Defenders. Uh, Another set we visited was Matt Murdock's apartment, which was super cool. They showed us how much detail goes into set design on Marvel's Netflix shows, like how every condiment and jar in Matt's kitchen has a Braille label on them. That's so cool. It's so cool. There's a picture on Marvel.com for my set visit piece about it. It's You really have no idea how much they make it a home for Matt Murdock. It's so impressive. The apartment, you can tell, is designed for someone who has to memorize it by touch and by space and not by sight. So there are, you know, trays in certain places, hooks in certain places. And it's just really cool to be in there because you're in Matt's apartment. And we've seen a lot take place there. We also had the chance to watch a scene between Matt and Karen that we were told was very emotionally charged and we had zero context, and it was indeed an extremely emotional scene for both characters, and when I was able to watch the season and saw the scene within the episode that it appeared in, I could not believe what had happened before. What episode? Do you remember? Later on, Mm. probably, uh, I want to say, after 10. Mm -hmm. After 10, Mm -hmm. maybe 11 or 12. I've got it in my head of possible scenes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And going by the interviews we had with the cast and crew, it was very easy to figure out that we were going to be following Matt and Fisk on their respective journeys throughout this season. Matt was at the bottom and digging deeper, and Fisk was slowly rising from his role as a prisoner back to the kingpin status he yearned to retake. And I definitely say, of the things that have come to light since my set visit, of the supporting cast that we met, none were playing FBI agents. But we learned about them later, and things at that point were so secretive. I just don't want to spoil anything for you guys, but as more information leaked out, Wilson Bethel's character was only listed as FBI agent. No name. Later we find out he's Benjamin Poindexter, and after that we find out he's playing the character that will eventually become Bullseye. Finding out that piece of the puzzle was super exciting. 
So my impression from the set visit was that we were all in for a season of Marvel's Daredevil that refocused on the main characters, filled in a few blanks, but told us about the respective journeys of heroes and villains as they rose and fell. It's almost Shakespearean this season. It is hardcore. Mm -hmm. It does not mess around. Very cool. So you you have articles on Marvel.com with all this stuff as well? Yeah. We cool. have got three pieces this week. One's about the set and the costume design. One's about the supporting actors. And one is about Charlie Cox and showrunner Eric Olson. Cool. Fabulous. Um, uh, and then for my part, I wanted to spotlight some some great comics to read. I would say you can read these afterwards and get even even deeper appreciation for the show, which the show doesn't directly adapt any of these, but you can see and feel the influences of these stories and, and many more throughout the season. So first and foremost, have to talk about one of the greatest and one of my favorite comic book stories of all time. That's Daredevil Born Again by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli. You got to pick up the collection or read Daredevil issues 227 through 233. The comic features Karen Page at her absolute lowest, leading her to selling out Daredevil's secret identity to the Kingpin. Wilson then destroys Matt's life. It is brutal. Matt rises back up in order to beat him. And along the way, Matt reunites with his mom. The story also sees the introduction of Nuke, which I've talked about many times on many shows, um, includes some wonderful Ben Yurick moments. And this is 80s Daredevil at its grittiest and best, a story that's probably influenced I would say every single comic book creator currently making books and everyone that you love has probably had influence from this story. I love 80s Daredevil. I did read Born Again and it's one of those things where it's like now I understand why people get obsessed with comics because stories like this are just uh, they're just so in your guts. Yes. Next up, let's go with Daredevil Guardian Devil by Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada. And this was the flagship book of the Marvel Knights line which is 20 years old this year, blows me away, but still, it hits you right in the feels. Karen, after a long time away, she returns to Matt's life, only to find herself between Daredevil and the bloodthirsty and twisted killer Bullseye. Now, this is just, uh, like, I have scenes of this book running through my head every time I talk about it. And in a career that's put him among the greatest artists of all time, this may be the best Joe Quesada's ever been. His art here is incredible it may be his top i don't know there's so many good books from joe but damn he is so good and this will remind you why he's up there with the absolute best i've got sister maggie she's in here lots of religious imagery and oh boy some absolutely deplorable bullseye action uh there are a ton 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 of amazing kingpin stories but I like to go back to Daredevil Love and War, which is a graphic novel from 1986 by Frank Miller, again, and Bill Sienkiewicz. Now, it really focuses on Wilson Fisk and the love of his life, Vanessa, what she means to him, what he'll do for her, how much that relationship pushes Kingpin's ongoing battle against Daredevil. It's so good, so fully fleshed out. Also, it is friggin' gorgeous. If you don't know Bill Sienkiewicz's work, it is sometimes abstract and strange, but he uses mixed media and numerous styles to convey deep emotion and action. He is a legitimate modern master, and I don't hesitate to call this one of his and Miller's masterpieces. I've only gotten to see Bill Sienkiewicz's artwork up close a few times, like original art. We saw it when we went to um, Seattle to the museum, and there was a piece of his New Mutants artwork, and he has like diodes and paint splatter and, and pieces of, of like 
newspaper and it was just magnificent to see. And this one is a little bit different. But when you start looking at this, you go, oh, this guy's just doing something completely different from everyone else. I highly suggest Love and War. And then finally, Bullseye Greatest Hits tells the origins of one of the most sadistic and messed up villains, Daredevil, or really any Marvel hero has had to face. It's all wrapped up in a story of revenge and mind games by Daniel Wayne, Steve Dillon, who Steve Dillon, one of my all-time favorite artists, still devastated that he's no longer with us, but this is one of his amazing, amazing works. What's neat about this one is that this is Bullseye's origin, or is it? Even digging into his baseball past, his abusive family stuff, and more of what made him who he was, there's still mystery about what is the truth? What is Bullseye's real deal? He's, you know, so sadistic and so twisted. And this one, you just, you want to keep reading, but he's just the worst. So good. Again, (laughs) none of these are adapted directly into season three of Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix. But I think you'll get an even greater enjoyment out of these comics and show if you dig into them after you see the season. Those are just a couple, like... Really, I'm sure we have other reading lists and stuff like that on the site. Oh, definitely. I actually started reading Daredevil from the very beginning, which is a very different kind of Daredevil comic, but it a is, fun one nonetheless. The first issue is art by Bill Everett. And for like, what is that, 1963 or 64? Yeah, 64. His art is so good at that time. Like, I mean, and he'd been working for a long time. He was terrific and you get so much even in that first issue you get you know his dad you get the the box and you get the accident you get matt going to law school you get foggy you get so much set up you know stan and bill do it so well right from the get-go oh yeah it's and it's super fun he's described as an adventurer a lot he's not just a crime fighter and the grittiness isn't quite there yet I would say it's not there at all yet, but yeah. because it's a fun comic, it's not meant to be gritty. It's just meant to be a guy who wants to stop evildoers from doing evil, and he contends with so many classic villains, like an original version of Bullseye, mm-hmm. and the Purple Man, as seen as in Marvel's Jessica Jones. And uh, it's fun comic stuff, but it's very different. So, yeah, just, yeah go for the early stuff. You will be able to read Ryan's reading list on Marvel.com. And we are so, so excited to binge the entirety of season three of Marvel's Daredevil out now exclusively on Netflix. Now, another really cool series is Marvel's Wolverine the Long Night, which is our first ever scripted podcast, which we just released for free. Yes, you can hear it right now online or in your podcast app. It starts when a fishing boat is found off the coast of Burns, Alaska. Special Agents Sally Pierce and Tad Marshall arrive to find out who or what killed the crew. And their primary suspect is a drifter named Logan. But the local police won't cooperate, and there's more going on in Burns than meets the eye. The podcast stars Richard Armitage as Wolverine. You might know him as Thorne from the Hobbit movies. With Celia Keenan-Bolger as Agent Pierce and Otto Asando as Agent Marshall. Also featuring Bob Balaban, Scott Adsit, and Chris Gethard. You haven't heard anything like this before. The sound design, acting, and writing are truly amazing. Check it out. Listen to Marvel's Wolverine the Long Night for free in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And visit WolverinePodcast.com for more info. All right. Our interview this week is with Mr. Jeremy Whitley. This is the second volume of Unstoppable Wasp out this week. Number one is one of my favorite picks of the week. So good. So fun. Art by Gurehiru. And the book is just, it's like a cloud of positivity. Oh, for sure. I mean, 
takes over your head. The first installment is one of the nicest things I've ever read when after reading a lot of, you know, really sad Wolverine stuff or a lot of gritty Daredevil stuff. This is like a really nice palate cleanser. Yeah. And Jeremy, he's great. I first met Jeremy when he was doing the first volume with uh, Elsa Charatier. He's a terrific writer. Yeah. And I just love the science aspect of this. It's like a bunch of teenage girl geniuses who are just going to conquer the world together. It's super fun. (laughs) Yeah. The Girls in Action Research Labs is just such a fun part of the Marvel Universe, and I, I can't wait to see more of this. As, you know, The first volume was sort of building this group, and this volume is really like taking them and seeing what they can do, what they're building, how they're working, how they're finding other people. And you know, one of the things that I love about Jeremy's version of Nadia and just Nadia in general is how positive she is. In oh. the first issue of this new volume, she... She's fighting a villain and like realizes she thinks she knows her and she's trying to recruit this person <laughs> to be good. They, she doesn't want to fight her. She wants to make friends and, and make good things for the world. And that level of positivity is so important. But now, check out our interview with Jeremy Whitley. Uh, this is your first time at Marvel Headquarters, is that yes. correct? Yes. And you haven't seen anything yet. Nothing. I came right up here and you locked me in a room. Yeah, that's what we do. It's real fun. Uh, but I'm excited because I want to give you the tour if I have the opportunity or someone will give you the tour. But it's fun. It's cool. Uh, way I like to start out this week at Marvel is, is often finding out, like, what's your Marvel origin story? How did you get connected, exposed to Marvel characters and stories when you were younger or older? What was your first exposure? Uh, my dad is also uh, a comic book nerd like me. Um, and uh, I grew up sort of all over the place, but uh, we were living in the Bay Area and uh, we had a cool local comic book shop called Fact, Fiction, and Fantasy uh, that my dad used to take us to. Um, at the time, my brother and I were really into uh, both Spider-Man and the X-Men, who both had animated series on at that point in the early 90s. And uh, I think that was very much my my entry point into it, is, is watching those and then going to the stores and, and picking up comics there. And uh, we had a some guy named Stan Lee came out and did a signing there. Not familiar and, with that guy. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I, I remember it was around the uh, rollout of the 2099 line of comics. Oh, in which he wrote Ravage 2099? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the, the only requirement to get a, a signature from Stan Lee at that point was to buy a copy of a new 2099 comic, which is much cheaper than it is now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I have, a, I have a copy of Doom 2099 signed by Stan Lee, and I think... Uh, at that point, I had written like a. I don't. I don't think the word fan fiction really existed at that point. <laughs> but I was in like second grade, and I had written like a, an X Men story for my class, and I was. You know, I brought it into him and showed it to him, and I drawn in crayon all the, you know, stuff that was going on in there. So, uh, you know, he was really encouraging. Read it and signed it for me, and was like, you know, keep writing, and uh, obviously I have. So. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's all his fault, but uh, it surely didn't hurt. That's pretty great. Uh, do you still have that story? It's somewhere in my uh, in my parents' attic. I would love if you wouldn't <laughs> if if you wouldn't be so embarrassed to if you can dig it out. That would be something really cool to share with fans. I do remember it involves the X Men and Mephisto, which that's cool. Yeah, uh, there's not a lot of X Men Mephisto stories if I think about it. There was. One like story that had like Avengers versus Mephisto, Fantastic Four, X Men, and someone else, but he's not a huge part of the X Men. Why? Why'd you go to Mephisto? 
Did you just say the devil no and like, as a idea. young kid? I, I think I think part of it was, you know, I was uh, I was in church at that point and like there were plenty of like people who were very like reactionary against comics, especially their representations of you know, the <laughs> devil and space demons and stuff like that. And I was like, nah, this guy's he's a really bad guy. <laughs> Can't be any worse than the devil. You know, so I like the idea of playing with Mephisto. I like him now partially because he's just such a He's just such a crook. He's such a, you know, twisted, crazy bad guy. But yeah, I think at that point I was just like, I can't think of anybody worse than this guy. Yeah. Now, when you, you, you go to this comic book store, was that were you already watching the cartoons? Because oh, the yeah. animated show, I remember very specifically, like, those were so important. Those were especially X-Men for me. It was like such a touch point watching those. Yeah, I definitely again, somewhere in my parents' house still have a uh Pizza Hut provided VHS of, of X-Men the Animated Very Series. Very familiar. Yes. Yeah, we used to get those when we go in and do our book it, uh-huh. um, you know. So, like, it was definitely, like, reading the comics that went with the animated series and, um, you know, reading some other X-Men and Spider-Man stuff as well. And then, like, collecting the trading cards. Mm. I, I know, remember my brother and I were really into, like, they had the uh, sets where, like, they had the power meters for each character on the back, which... I feel like those are very defining for our, our generation. It's like, it's like, oh, I know that Hulk is stronger than whoever because it says on his power meter right here <laughs> that he is a seven and that guy's only a five. Yeah, definitive. I mean, you yeah. can't argue with the facts. Those are numbers. Yeah. They mean something. Yeah, for me, it was like the first set and the second set of the Marvel Universe trading cards. And like they also had like their win-loss records, which I thought... Thinking about it now, as someone who has worked at Marvel for a long time, is that just somebody going, I don't know, uh, 125 wins, 12 losses, 8 ties? Like, was there someone calculating that? I want to know those things. Yeah, it's somebody just, like, going through and, like, flipping through every comic, and they're like, ah, that looks like a win to me. Uh, that's another win. Yeah, yeah that's, that's insane to think about, that either somebody just <laughs> looked at, just was like, the Hulk. Hmm. He wins a lot. <laughs> Batrock. Mm, he's probably won like twice. You know. <laughs> Did any of that influence your comics, the way you think about characters or like, you know, talking about the power meters, like thinking about, oh, this character has got intelligence of, you know, 10 or 9 or whatever the, the range went up to. Like, does that influence how you think about the superheroes and stuff? I think to some extent, like, I grew up on that, you know, D&D, which is that same sort of attribute system where like, you know, you have people ask you when you're writing comics, like, oh, who would win if these two guys were fighting? And it's like, well, it's not always, like, punch strength. Those aren't the most interesting types of stories usually to tell is, like, two guys just beat each other until, you know, somebody wins. Unless unless you're, like, Walt Simonson, you can do, like, epic battles with, you know, Thor throughout an entire issue. <laughs> but, like, the idea of, like, all right, how does this character who has, like, some abilities and, like you know, intelligence and power manipulation take on somebody the size of the Hulk or the Juggernaut or something like that. And it's it's always interesting to me. I always like to play the types of characters that are not like straight up tanks or straight up magicians, but I like the characters who uh, can manipulate things, who are, are personable, the, the Remy LeBeau's of the world, you know? You son of a bitch. <laughs> How dare you? I hate Gambit. He's so gross. He's so gross. I mean... But Ke- you yes. know what? <laughs> Kelly Thompson has done a great job. I love Kelly, and she's done really good work to make me and other anti-Gambit people more uh, 
acclimated to him. I feel like a lot of people that have that like anti-gambit feeling, it's a lot of like that same X-Men animated series in which he was an absolute weasel. Just and, weasel is such a good word for him. Yeah. It, you know, there's uh, the whole thing when they're like visiting the island and like they're there to check out whether they're like locking up mutants and like he's there with Storm and like there's a sign on the thing that says like ask about our mutant discount and Gambit's like maybe we save a little money. <laughs> it's like maybe we save a little money, eh? Yeah, it's like <laughs> uh, that that series, man. It was so good. Um, but I, I love your story about how you got started with your creator-owned book. Princeless. There was I was reading an interview you did with Kelly Thompson back in the day, and you mentioned Craigslist was a part of getting that started. Can you give a little bit of in, like that background to our listeners, and then talk about how you got started uh, working for Marvel? Yeah, so it's interesting because I sort of I started out. I went to school for writing, and it's much like, especially at, at UNC where my creative writing program was. They have this very like strong bias against what they call like genre fiction. Not just comics, but like sci-fi and fantasy stuff in general. That was the kind of stuff I'd grown up loving, and I hadn't had a chance to write any of it while I was, you know, learning to write. And at some point, I when I started getting back into comics, like I realized that somebody was doing the writing in there, and I was like, well, that's that's the kind of thing I'd like to do. So like I started writing this first series that never sort of saw the light of day, but I was looking for somebody to draw it because I'm a, I continue to be a terrible artist. I think that crayon drawing that I you know, gave Stan is really sort of the height of my <laughs> artistic career. But it got seen by Stan Lee, yeah. so mm, it's pretty Stan good. Stan Lee has seen some of my art, you know. Yeah. But I, I was looking for somebody to draw that, and I, I sort of, I went to Craigslist sort of out of desperation and was like, yeah, I'm just looking for artists to work with on, on comic stuff. And uh, my friend uh, Charlie Harper, who uh, let me know that, he was putting together this meetup of artists and stuff, and uh, I should come check it out. So we ended up meeting up at this coffee shop where and I started working with Charlie on this book, and then I started working with uh, my friend Jason Strutz on uh, the first comic we ever self-published, which was called The Order of Dagonet. And while we were doing that, I started writing the series Princeless, which um, I wanted to do you know, a story that I could share with my daughter, something with a young woman of color as, as the lead and as her, her own hero in this fantasy setting. And um, eventually, even though you know, I did plenty of different stuff between then and now, that first volume of Princeless is what I ended up sending to several editors here at Marvel is sort of like my resume, like, this is what I'm doing. I'm making comics. These are the kind of comics I make. And, you know, that ended up sort of getting me my, my first uh, gig working on... Uh, Secret Wars, Secret Love with Guri Hiru, who I then ended up working with uh, again on this book years later. That's amazing. And it, what I love is uh, that first story is a romance story. You get the, the chance to come into Marvel and the biggest superheroes and the coolest powers, and you do this wonderful romance story. I remember loving that tale. Why was that the story that you did? Well, partially, like, they were looking to do romance stories from the multiverse for this, and... um there's been this big movement in comics at that point to like break up all the couples and unmarry people. And like, there was this big insistence from different people that like, you couldn't tell an interesting superhero story with a married couple. And, um, I was like, well, you know, what if, since we're doing this story, that's going to be a romance story about this relationship, what if instead of, you know, it being a young 
romance. It's you know a story about a married couple that's sort of like struggling, both as as superheroes and in their their relationship. And uh, it sort of takes that um, having to you know beat up a T Rex together to sort of remember what it was they you know they loved about each other. Yeah. But, yeah, and I I love Misty Knight and Iron Fist, so that was a sort of a natural pairing for me to dive in with and. Because it was Secret Wars, I could have a version of them that, you know, we're now an older married couple and it had that time together and had a kid and we're at sort of the same spot that we saw, you know, Luke Cage and Jessica Jones at that point. Yeah. What is it like coming into Marvel in your first project as part of a giant event? I think Secret Wars is probably our biggest event in, in history. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really fun. Um, I feel like getting a chance to... Uh, be seen amongst all that other stuff was cool. And to know that, you know, I had eight pages really is, is all that story was. But, you know, the number of people who saw it compared to the number of people who saw, you know, stuff I was self-publishing or publishing independently, it was immediately obvious to me by like the amount of feedback that we got from people. It's interesting because I feel like people didn't really know what to make of this uh, romance comic that was part of this big giant crossover and was only sort of sort of connected to everything else. But I think that was sort of the beauty of, of Secret Wars in general was that like you got to have all these little different pieces of, of the Marvel Universe that all fed into this big event. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that. From there, where did you go? You have, when when did Wasp come into the picture? Because Secret Wars was what, 2015, I think? Uh, I think so. 2015. I think probably about a year before I did anything else with Marvel because my next thing was uh, I did a Civil War II story that was all about uh, War Machine's funeral and had a bunch of little sort of vignettes of, of different characters who we didn't see really getting to talk about that in, in different aspects. And that was cool because I get to work with Marguerite Sauvage and get to see, you know, got to give her all sorts of beautiful things to draw because we got uh, America Chavez in there and there's a bit with Storm and mm-hmm. all that. And um, I think that was my first experience of like having to chop out big chunks of my dialogue because I was like, <laughs> I can't cover up this artwork. Like, this is gorgeous. <laughs> I have to, like, cut as much as I can to make the story work. What's that like getting in art from an artist that, you know, you're writing this and then you get pages in, like, like, oh, I came up with this idea and had it in my head. Now I see it from someone who is just a master at their craft. Yeah, I think that's my favorite part of comics in general is, like, having this thing that's in my head. It's this idea that I have that, like, I can put down on paper and I can write, but I can't possibly like capture it in the the way that you know these artists can. And having these pages pop up in my inbox, just like done, it's like wow, that's that's incredible. There's you know no way I can do that myself, and that's like something that happens on a daily basis for me now. Uh, All right, is, yeah, I get it. It's a little bit of a brag. It's good. Well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm working on you know four or five, six different you know, projects at a time. So like every day I open up my inbox and I'm like, oh, wow, there's that idea that I had six months ago. And now it's like a real thing on the page. That's incredible. I mean, in working with Marvel, like there's, you know, I've gotten to work with people who are uh, not just not just on the other side of the country, but on the other side of the world. Guri Hiru, they're, they're in Japan. Um, you know, I worked with Elsa who lives in Paris on... Uh, you know, the first volume of Wasp, uh, the Thor versus Hulk series that I did, the Comicsology original, like, 
at two different artists and like one of them is in Italy and the other one is you know, all the way on the other side of the world. So like it's just going around the world with every issue. It's really cool. Is it weird on the, on the same token that you're working with people who you may never meet in person? Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to think about, especially in, in that a lot of these people I feel like I've met. I uh, actually just met uh, Alti Fermancia, who worked with me on, on Thor vs. Hulk at San Diego Comic-Con this year. And, like, that was, I feel like it's probably one of the few chances we'll ever have to meet. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, I got to run all the way across town so I can go meet this person because, you know, they're an incredible artist who worked on this great thing together. And I want to make sure, like, I take this one chance to see them. Because, yeah, there's definitely artists that I've worked with, you know, now years past that I, I haven't ever met. I think it it shows you just how like both big and small the comics industry is like everybody knows each other but also they're all spread out all around the world. So uh you got to you got to take the chance to like actually meet people and, and hang out when you can. Yeah. You said six projects you're working on right now? Um six projects plus two children and a wonderful family? Yes. <laughs> At least <laughs> How six. are you alive? How are you here? How did we get this to happen? You know, I uh, I write very fast. I stay ahead <laughs> of the curve. So uh, I, I think if if anything about me is like Nadia, it's my, my work ethic. When, like, there's something on my mind that I want to get done, I tend to, like, sit down and grind until I can get it done. And, you know, when it's when I have this idea in my head for a comic or, like, I know the direction I want to go. I tend to like just park my butt in my laptop at a uh, a coffee shop and not get up until it's done. <laughs> I'm sure they love that. Now, uh, that's great. Good segue into talking about Nadia Van Dyne, the first series of Unstoppable Wasp. I loved, you know, I talked about it uh, heavily on the show. And one of the fun things I loved was the scientist spotlights that we had in the back of the first volume. Whose idea was that? That was sort of a, a combination of, of myself and Elsa. She talked about doing like a, a Tumblr where we talked about, you know, famous historical scientists, female scientists as well. And uh, I had been talking about wanting to highlight female scientists. And I was like, well, if we're going to do this, why don't we see if we can do it in the book? Why don't we see if, you know, instead of having a letters page, we can have these interviews. And instead of them being, you know, historical, there are incredible women working in science right now. So, you know, to be able to see these real women out here that are, are doing what our characters are doing in the comics or in some cases bigger things even uh in one of the interviews coming up for the new volume i interviewed a scientist whose whose title is um lead planetary defense specialist which like that's an incredible title like that is the coolest title i've ever heard yeah and i mean her her job is to like when stuff returns to Earth, be it you know satellites or, or shuttles or whatever, is to uh, sort of go through and evaluate any like microscopic threats, anything it might have brought back with it, and make sure that there's you know nothing that's going to uh, give us an, an Andromeda strain. There's no there's no venom aboard these. Uh, Just these gonna things. say she's protecting us from venom. She's protecting us from venom. She's the hero we need. This is amazing. I'm so glad that we're doing more of the these interviews in the back of uh, the books. Yeah, that was that was like that was a big thing for myself and Alana, who was the editor on it, to make sure that those like made it to the trades as well, because we wanted that to stay part of that book and, and make sure people who were picking it up from a library or uh, book fair or just you know buying it in a, 
a store later on, like still got that content and still found out about these interviews. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask about for the scientists was do all those women, did they like, were they familiar with comics, with like the Marvel Universe? Was some of it like, like, sure. Like, I, I'm sure you've, you ran a gamut of familiarity when you were bringing this to them. How do you like find them and how'd they react? Yeah, it, it was uh, a variety of different levels of familiarity. The first couple of folks I talked to were people that I, I knew personally from Twitter that I knew to be scientists who were comics fans and uh, I knew would be sort of game for this this idea. And thank you to Rachel and Marina, who were our first interviewees on that and uh, sort of took a chance. But uh, they sort of introduced me to some more people. And once we put out that first letters column, we had a you know, read us at this email address to let us know if you have more suggestions or if you want to be on here. And we had a lot of people reach out to us either for themselves or for uh, their friends who were scientists. And I, I think the the coolest bit was uh, Tamara and Tracy, who both worked on uh, Mythbusters, who uh, got introduced to me and were super excited because uh, Tamara does a lot of like superhero science stuff where she's like you know how how could we recreate this thing from the comics and uh she came out to like a free comic book day event we had in north carolina and was like created this uh synthetic thing that moved like venom it would you know creep up on magnets and stuff like that so that's been really cool and uh yeah they've been they've been big boosters of ours as well that's awesome of course you have tons of science stuff in in the books you know nadia and 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 agents of girl and all that stuff do you have a go-to like science person do you do you have reference or or like you know fact checkers or just like wing it uh tomorrow robertson has become my my go-to science person i i feel like the first time i did any of it um so I was writing the first issue of Wasp about the same time that I was I was co-writing an issue of Avengers with uh, with Mark Wade, and uh, Mark knows science stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I had sort of like hand waved the science stuff in that <laughs> issue, and uh, and my first version of the script. And Mark was like, "Oh no, I'm gonna look this up. I'm gonna get into some you know science journals and, and get back to you. Make sure you know we get this uh, this right." And I think that sort of became my my inspiration for making sure that like. We made sure that there was real science in there, and that the the super science was you know close enough to reality that we could sort of justify it and say you know oh this is this is the leap of the Marvel universe. So I've I've gone through a couple of different things with folks. Um, I've had some some science in the the new volume that I've I've run past tomorrow just to make sure it was it was correct. And um, usually if if I uh, have something that I feel like is too specialized, I'll sort of ask for references for for people i can talk to um that's awesome though yeah i always try to have sensitivity readers on stuff that i think is important from like a social perspective so i try to do the same thing from you know a science perspective as well yeah Uh, how much fun was it writing with mark i mean we're similar in age and like i remember reading like all the stuff that he's done over the years it's just yeah it was pretty wild um (laughs) because it was definitely like mark has done so much incredible stuff um, and it is such a you know inspirational figure to me as far as the writing goes. So like, you know, at that point, I had started out sort of asking him about Nadia because he had created Nadia in Avengers. I wanted to make sure that you know I sort of kept her the same character that he had intended her to be while adding further depth to her. So I had sort of started out asking him about her, and then um, 
I had sent him the first script of the the first issue of Wasp just to be like, hey, does this feel right to you? And um, he, he was kind enough to say like, oh yeah, you did you did it better than than I do. Um, hey, do you want to come co-write this issue of Avengers with me? Because it's going to be very like Wasp focused. It's going to be you know all about her and Janet. And I was like. Do I want to co-write an issue with the Avengers with Mark Wade? Is that is that the question you're asking me? Is, is do I want to do that? Of course I want to do that. That sounds amazing. So uh, it was my first experience co-writing, really, too, because um, you know we just sort of got on the phone and he was like, "All right, here's what needs to be there. Here's sort of my ideas for it. What what do you think? What do you want to do?" And um, for a dude who's done so much, that's such an amazingly collaborative way to go about it. Yeah, and that was that was my experience with you know asking him about Nadia as well because I was like, I fully expected him to give me direction, <laughs> and he didn't. Which at the time I was like, come on. <laughs> but like, I was like, so you know, what is this character like? What is she, she doing? And Mark's like, yeah, it's it's your book. You you write it the way you think is you know is right. I will give you some some sort of pointers, some things to look at that I I think will be good to start you off. But, you know, you need to make it your book. And I, I feel very much to his credit, like, that's what ended up making the book it was. If if I was too concerned about, like, what Mark would think, uh, who knows what I would have ended up writing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it was so awesome to, like, uh, I've co-written three issues of Avengers with him now. And, and each time he's been very, like, what do you want to do? What what do you think is a good idea? And, you know, it's thanks to him that... Uh, an issue of, of his Avengers. I got to write Doctor Doom. So, you know, pretty neat. Doctor Doom and Peter Parker in the same issue. <laughs> and it's 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 so interesting to me. Like, the first time I wrote Peter Parker, I was like, oh, I know what this guy sounds like. <laughs> you know, this, this is very easy. Peter Parker sounds like this. You know, and, and uh, you just sort of fall into these these patterns very easily because I've, I've been reading Spider-Man since I was, you know, five. Right. So. They feel like real people because, and that's partially and so much credit to the Marvel Universe, like making them feel real. Absolutely. So the first run of Unstoppable Wasp, jam-packed. So much stuff in it. Uh, Nadia connecting with Janet, establishing Girl, of course, rescuing Ying. So much going on. What's in store for the new volume? So the new volume, we're we're jam packing it just as much. I think we're we're taking on a lot of uh, both both fun and I, I think some kind of hard subjects, and that you know we're we're picking up where we left off with girl and and uh, what they're inventing, what they're making, but also um, we're following sort of Nadia's career that's it's blossomed since the original volume as a as a superhero. Um, you know she's a champion now. She was an Avenger through you know one of the biggest events in Avengers history. She takes that very seriously, and I think part of what we're dealing with is this resurgence of AIM in this volume, including uh, Monica Rappuccini, who you know was in our first volume. We're bringing her back. We've got some new bad guys coming in with AIM, and um, it's Nadia's first real experience of like having to juggle all of these things because uh, you know in, in Nadia's case, she's been locked up in a room with only one thing to do for sixteen years. So, uh, you know, she she's sort of come out raring to go and, and wanting to do everything. And she's finally at a point where, like, she has an opportunity to do all this stuff. But how much can she actually handle and, and what happens when, you know, those things start compounding and, and setting each other off? And, um, you know, we get to see a bit more of uh, what Nadia is like under pressure in this volume. Yeah. I'm excited for that. And I also, I love the world you created around her as much as I love what, you know, who Nadia is and the positivity and so much that, that she embodies. 
It's, you know, her relationship with Jarvis, her relationship with Janet, Mockingbird, Bobby being part of this whole group. And then, of course, Girl. Will we see those characters pop up again? Or will there be new members of Girl? Like, what about the supporting cast? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll, we're bringing back all of the supporting cast. Uh, Jarvis is taking a little more of a backseat this time. We're focusing, I think, a little more on Nadia's relationship with Girl and with Janet specifically. Janet, I, I think, is a big part from the beginning, which, uh, you know, we didn't want to introduce her too early in the first volume because we didn't want her to overshadow Nadia and <laughs> Nadia's own book. But this is very much following both of the Wasps. Mockingbird is, is back and is, uh, you know, working as sort of a, an advisor for Girl. And then, yeah, all the whole slate of, of girls are back. Um, and we're uh, getting to go a little more into each of those characters because, you know, the first volume, by the time we've introduced everybody, we've got our big conclusion and then it's over. So, you know, we're getting to see a little bit more behind them being immersed into this sort of superhero and science part of the Marvel Universe, which, you know, is, is brand new to them. They're all regular girls for the most part, other than being super intelligent. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're not uh, they don't have any superpowers. So there's a lot it's a lot for them to deal with. Well, like Squirrel Girl, they have power of girl. And so yeah. that's, that's so much. That's that's great. I'm bummed that Elsa Chartier is not on the book, of course, but you have Kirohiru and they are wonderful. We talked a little bit about them, but does their style, which is very different from Elsa's, does that change the way you write, the way you think about the scripts and, and sort of presentation? How does that relationship now work for you? Um, I think they were great choices for the book. Um, we were very lucky that you know they were coming off of having done Gwynpool at the time that we were getting ready to launch this volume. So I wanted a style which, you know, while different from Elsa's, while it didn't feel like they were just trying to copy what she had done, was up to sort of the playfulness and excitement of these characters and had that level of expression that, uh, that the first volume had. And um, there's such a great match for Nadia especially, but for the whole girl team. And um, I think looking at the first couple issues as they've come in, like it just makes me want to do bigger and crazier stuff because they're so good. Everything they turn in, even the couple of times I do have notes, I'm like, I feel like, this needs to change, but also what they've done is really amazing, <laughs> but it doesn't really make sense with like what I've written. There's already been one point where like in the first issue where I wrote a thing and they interpreted it a different way. And I was like, no, that's actually better. <laughs> like what, let's go with what they did. <laughs> um, Cause I, to sort of give away a secret here, like in our promo art, there's already an image of Nadia driving Jarvis in the flying car. And uh, I had just written that they were like, the car had come off a bump and was was flying and, you know, sort of coming off the ground kind of way. And they drew it as actually flying. And I was like, no, that's way better. Yeah. That's Let's go with that. You know, they contribute so much to the book that makes it so much better and more exciting than it is just with, you know, my words. <laughs> Uh, but I do love your words, uh, including in Thor versus Hulk Champions of the Universe, which is a super fun series. And you got to introduce a new elder of the universe, the promoter, who she was dope. I love her. Thank you. How much fun is it to introduce characters into the fabric of the Marvel Universe? I love it. <laughs> I, I, I love doing that stuff. I love creating new characters. Um, the promoter was so much fun because I felt like um, I know you're a fan of wrestling as well. So this idea of having like the champion of the universe who's like the best fighter in a very like 
pro wrestling kind of way. Like, his he just shows up. Is even he's even yeah, guys got like a championship, a championship belt. belt on. He just shows up places and is like, I want to fight your toughest dude. <laughs> like, and the idea of giving him like a Paul Heyman, like a character who can like rap at the same level that he can fight and like can make all this more interesting was was such a great idea to me when I came up with it. I was like, no, that's that's what we got to do now because yeah. it was like. And I, I, Alana can testify to this. I'd sort of written in the first issue. I was like, I just need somebody to introduce him. And uh, I had sort of written this character who I was like, maybe they turn out to be Loki. And maybe they are, you know, some other part of the, the Thor world. And, like, I wrote this first scene with her. And I was like, nope, uh, that's a new character. I'm going <laughs> to, she, she's going to be a thing that sticks around. Because the idea of, of having this character who, you know, you find out throughout the series, like, her deal is like her people were got their powers from the Beyonders, and their thing is they have sort of this infinite power that they can't use to do anything for themselves. Like they can only use it to help other people. And she's sort of turned this into like being a promoter and manipulating things to, you know, get what she wants. Um, but she also has this sort of, you know, really interesting story of how she got there and, and what she wants to do, which, you know, was really fun to sort of roll out throughout the series. Yeah. So I was talking with someone here in the office mentioning that you were coming in for This Week at Marvel, and they told me that their son, uh, probably around 10 years old, was a big fan of Unstoppable Wasp. And I know you do lots of conventions and events. Do you have any memorable fan experiences from Wasp, especially from like younger readers? Yeah, I've <laughs> I've had some, some really exciting experiences, uh, including having somebody uh, show up in, in Nadia cosplay at an event, not even as the Wasp, but as the uh, sort of Nadia disheveled with the, the long, like, Pim Labs shirt and the, you know, fluffy uh, bee slippers that uh, I feel like is a, a token look for her. And I've had a lot of, like, parents that are really excited that, like, Wasp has gotten their kids excited about these other things in science. Like, you know, kids that are interested in science and can go, like, check out these other scientists we've interviewed or, or get fascinated with these neat science facts that we have in there and sort of go into these, you know, rabbit holes of learning all this cool science stuff because they, you know, read this uh, fun thing in a comic that, that we introduced. You know, I feel like that's sort of the dream, right, is to, like, get kids inspired to, like, go do something exciting and bring in that next generation of great scientists who, who will someday create, you know, pim particles and stuff like that, right? <laughs> it's, it's super cool. Uh, speaking of kids, is your daughter, or your uh, eldest daughter, old enough to read your comics yet? She is. Uh, she's seven. She does read my comics. She likes Wasp, and she likes some of my other stuff. Her favorite, though, is still, uh, I've got my shirt on, is still the, the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. She's a huge fan of, of both Squirrel Girl and uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. So I'm competing with Ryan North for the love of my daughter, but uh, you know we're we're getting there, and she she loves superheroes and loves comics, so that's that's a win in my book. Even if I'm not the one getting the love, uh, at least she's she's loving comics and and reading just for fun. Heck yeah, Jeremy. When does Unstoppable Wasp number one come out? Uh, it launches October seventeenth everywhere. And uh, it's going to be ongoing for the foreseeable future. Heck, yeah. Very excited. Thank you for coming in. Uh, maybe we'll get out of here and, and get a little tour for you. Awesome. Thank you to Mr. Jeremy Whitley. It is time for our community section. Before we get into it, question of the week for next week is, what is the scariest Marvel comic you've ever read? 
let us know. You can tweet using uh, hashtag This Week at Marvel. Email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Yeah, use that opportunity to try and scare me because <laughs> I have a dead soul that doesn't get scared anymore. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, all right. First up uh, from the tweets, we've got Raph Abis who says, so in Spanish, the Punisher is called El Castigador. Love when translation manages to insert weird puns. And Jiggy Cruz says, Hi, Ryan. Just wanted to say that every time either Nick Lowe or Tom Brevoort guest on This Week in Marvel, I feel that there's just so much love and passion for Marvel. So entertaining and so cool. I learn new things. Keep up the awesome work. Thanks, Jiggy. Yeah, I, Nick and Tom are, they have such a weird, fun rivalry. Like, <laughs> Nick is X-Men. Tom is Avengers. They will yell at each other about which is better, but at the same time, they work so well together and they have so much knowledge and so much experience with the Marvel Universe. We should host a friendly debate. I think we did some stuff like that during AVX time uh, when we were doing Avengers vs. X-Men. That's when it got really heated. Uh, But yeah, Uh, Simon Williams says, listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 363, hearing Nick Lowe and Agent M say, Spider-Geddon, reminds me of Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. (laughs) (laughs) Secret, secret. Maybe yes. Ooh. From Karis Pollard and finally Twim of the Week, Captain America number four, deep issues to think about and a real sense of Cap being on the rack emotionally and trying to work through some huge things that are hurting, plus the sort of ending that makes me wish the next month away. Karis, we got your name right. I did it. We did it. I looked at my DMs and made sure I said (laughs) it right. Last one here from Alex Villasenor. Uh, He's tweeting to Leah Williams saying, listen to you on This Week in Marvel, and I totally have a fascination with Emma Frost as well. The Genosha event was giant unhappy face. Yeah. Uh, Accurate. Yeah, it is. Accurate. I mean, millions of mutants destroyed in moments. It's horrifying. That whole thing. Yeah. Still breaks me up a little bit. I think that about wraps it up for this week. Next week is one of our Halloween spooktaculars. So we'll be talking about some horror comics. We're doing stuff on Marvel's pull list with some spooky stuff. So put on your witch's hats. Is that what you wear for Halloween? I don't dress up. I mean, I love Halloween, but to me, every day is Halloween. So I just walk around trying to be scary to people. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) I'm Ryan. And I'm Jamie. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.